0: Welcome. Thanks for joining us. And I've seen lots of lovely faces that I've seen every week for five weeks. Mm. Thank you so. Much. Who's been here every week for five weeks? Whoa! Mm. Wow! We'd mm. like
1: mm. wow. mm. mm. nice to be here for the next five
0: weeks.
1: Yeah. Oh <laughs> my goodness!
0: Thank you so much. So for next Wednesday, uh, Susan has very kindly said that downstairs, you know in the lovely uh, tea and coffee place outside the Lexicon, that she's going to host a free tea and coffee at 11 o'clock next week. So you can have a chat. The people who've been here for the last five weeks, and actually the people who've just come tonight. This is a place, a very safe place, to talk about everything to do with dementia. Not just dementia, but older people, creative arts. Anything we can do to keep our middle age and our older brains nice and healthy and just bouncing, and doing wonderful new things. Because we had a poet on week three, you might remember. Yes. You think, yes. 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 When did he start writing 70 poetry? said he 70 was 75. 75. Yeah. You know, there's no limit to anything that we can do. And this was a gentleman who had 10 years of formal schooling. He left when he was 14 years old. Oh,
1: if he can do it, we can do it.
0: So the people I want to introduce you to tonight are amazing. We've almost kept the best to last,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and almost, almost. Really to. <laughs> but we really want to
0: But we really wanted to finish this lovely five-week series with a kind of a round-up of all of the things that we've already done over the last five weeks. So week one, can anyone remember, what was the theme? Music, to to we to had a few beautiful songs. We had Nora Walsh who did a great warm-up with us. Yeah. We were in her choir. Yes. And we had Professor Ryan Lawler who yes. was yes. smashing. Yeah. 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 So that was week one and that's all about music, singing and all the wonderful things that we can do for our brain just by music and singing and he gave us some brilliant tips about uh, brain health. Which we know no, brain health is not the opposite of Exactly. Your brain health is keeping yourself healthy. It's like physical health, health, heart health. Any other health? Can <coughs> you think of another health? Mental health? Exactly. We talked about that too, didn't we? So for your mental health, and to cherish our mental health, one of the things we need to do is exactly what we're doing tonight, is social interaction. So next Wednesday, and every other Wednesday if you want, meet at 11 o'clock. You're going to find somebody here who will chat to you. So you found a whole new cohort of, of friends as well. So that's the whole thing about uh, interaction. Week two, what did we learn in week two?
1: Tinnitus. Tinnitus. Yes. And
0: hearing. And hearing. And hearing. And dance. The dance. Dance. And uh-huh. dance. Bodyhood. And bodyhood. Good yeah. <laughs> So when there was all of these things going on, connected with the ears. So it was ears, balance, yeah. dance, dance. your ground. All phones off, I hope. Yeah. yeah, very good. Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was week two. Week three, we had a lovely gentleman who started to write poetry and he accepts Who, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who else, else do we need? In Rocks. But who else do we need? The, the, the wonderful, Oh, our oh our yes. Francis Elias! Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> yes. Francis Elias. <Ahlius>. <laughs> oh, she, did she did the was yes. right. yes. yes. a Tilda, like She Yes. a time. She recited the That was a poem yeah, was that she learned professionally.
1: Rib-
0: <from> <Kyo laughs> when she was, I think, 10 years old, she got second. Who got first? I don't know. Brenda Fricker. She was a great and we also met Ron Carey, the poet from yes. yes. a wonderful <laughs> poet. He started yes. writing poetry when he retired. Yes, never That's too, right. never too late to start learning something new. Week four, who do we meet?
1: We us. The artist, Caroline, wasn't she oh, yes. oh
0: my goodness, Oh good my goodness, gorgeous. she's gorgeous. And yeah. Tony Curtis, yes. yes. Astana, yeah. yeah. oh, yeah. well. poet Tony Curtis, Tony or Everett. really good, great yeah. guy, and the yeah. global, aye, yeah. <laughs> yes, and Andrew Andrew Glynn, who Andrew is a colleague. It's a lovely way to introduce you to her colleague, Andrew Glynn. Dr. Glynn has a colleague in Trinity College, and her colleague is Augustine. Oh. So, Augustine Ivanes joins us all the way via Argentina oh. yes. and Augustine is going to tell us a little bit about creative brain health and what's happening around the world. Augustine, thank you for joining us.
2: Okay, hi everybody, can you hear me well? Yes. Yes. So be prepared for a broken English for a while, for 15 minutes, I will do my best. Uh, But I come from Argentina, very far away. And it's my father probably who pushes me without knowing that. So my father got dementia. By the way, today is his birthday. I can't believe it. So I was living in Germany and many other places. My daughter was taking care of him you know, as usually happen in most of places, but especially in Latin America, are women that take care, you know, daughters on wife. So I was going back to Argentina thinking that it's a wonderful meeting with my father, you know, all will be fantastic, but I was completely unprepared. My father got a strong paranoia, strong changes in personality, and I should be one of the worst caregivers uh, in Argentina. It was terrible. It was really, really bad. But thanks for that, I devoted my life to do research in dementia. So I coordinate a large consortium in Latin America and US uh, doing genetics, social determinant of health, you know, how the environmental impacts in your health also, and trying to understand that not all dementia are the same. You know, it is a huge important aspect from culture to biology to understand. But then we also realized that we need to understand better um, the connections not only with research that in latin america we need a lot so i um, very happy to be here it's a great pleasure for me i can't believe all the people is coming and no my sister was the, so my sister was taking care of my father wow. but i say that daughters and wife are oh, yes. the typical yes. caregivers yes. you know like 90 yes. percent of them in latin america are women yes. so first of all we start to understand brain health not as a pure medical condition, you know, just trying to understand the huge interactions within environmental cultures, you know, uh, self-regulations, social connections. You know, this is very complex and scientists, we tend to be simple you know, try, we try to reduce all to simple rules, and, but dementia is a really, really complex condition. And we just start to do that. For, for that, we really need transdisciplinary approaches that combine different, you know, views. And the most important thing is to understand what we can do to prevent, and, bless you, to prevent, you know, and to make big changes. So thinking in brain health beyond disease, even if you are talking about dementia is from, at least find like my perspective as researcher essential. Yeah. So yes, let me first you give you a a short view of how neuroscientists understand the impact of art and why we are talking about art. Because you know the way that we respond to environmental demands like stress, you know, pollution, um, conflicts, whatever it's also impacting in your, in your biology. And the way that you self-regulate yourself, the way that you, you know, react or overreact or underreact to environmental demands, it's not, some, not only a social problem, it's a biological problem. This is that I want to tell you. But this take a oh my goodness, I will learn it at the end. Uh, so neuroscientists have been using a very reductionistic way to understand the impact of brain health. So for instance, They do experimentals like using, you know, artificial settings, trying to control everything and measuring the brain activity. So the way that we understand the impact of art, for instance, so this is a couple of experiments that we did in Buenos Aires, I will put that and I will tell you. So Buenos Aires, we don't have nothing of money, but we have a lot of tango dancers that doesn't have money. (laughs) So they are really, willing to participate in an experiment. So we bring the expert there, we show them people dancing uh, while we were measuring their brains. And we found wonderful things. So the experts anticipate the errors when they are just saying videos of other people dancing. You know, her brain is kind of anticipating what's going to happen. And this is very important because all brains are, you know, self-organizing machines, trying to anticipate well, what is going on to happen. And when you are under stress, they have a huge impact, right? When we are under stress, we try to anticipate the negative consequences of the actions. So this is something this is a simple way to understand how understanding art in the brain can help us to understand other processes. But at the same time, we need to move from purely oriented neuroscience perspective because it's a extremely reductionist thing. You know, neuroscientist doesn't understand nothing more than this, what happened in the brain. And brain health is more beyond that. You know, what's happening in your environmental, what happened in your social interactions, this is impacting your brain <laughs> more than what happened directly or iso- in an isolated way in the brain. So we need to move forward. And uh, there are many opportunities. This is the most important thing that I want to tell you. For a long time, neuroscientists have been trying to do a smaller thing, reductionistic thing. Reductionistic things means that they try to understand all the phenomena just looking at the brain, right? Not to other places. And you know, social scientists, sometimes they just ignore biology. So we are creating a kind of division between culture and biology that's happening in the university departments, but not in real life. You know, we are not brains without bodies. We are not brains without settings, without context, without culture, without history. And we need to start to understand, oh, sorry, um how we can understand this complexity and this start with a complex name like allostasis do you know what is allostasis did you hear about that so it's it's a kind of the way that we respond to any demands in the environment right so like if you you know have a fight with your daughter and then you try to you know to compensate to talk to her so this creates a kind of peak of stress and then you try to react and, and you learn this process and you start to anticipate other situations. Like I am very shy, honestly. So when I am here, I immediately try to anticipate what is going to happen, right? So what, when this is under stress and, and when it's sustained in the time, this start to deregulate your body. So for instance, your viscera start to create more inflammation. Because the brain triggers that. Because it's a kind of adaptive response to, you know, response to environmental demand. But when it's sustained so in the time, then you know the, your microbiota, that is crucial. Your microbiome is crucial for your mental health, as you may know. You know, also start to change. But also your cardiovascular health impacts. So the way that you learn to cope with the stress is very important, and impacts all the cardio metabolic system, not only the brain. So. You know, stroke, cardio, all the cardio diseases, uh, metabolic disease um, and and dementia, of course, are increased or the risk is increased by stress. That means a good news that if we learn to reduce the stress, we can make biological changes and this is what the darts are doing. It takes so long. This conclusion just now we are starting to write the Lancet. You know, is a very important journal. Probably, you know, mm-hmm. we are going to publish the first series in the Lancet about art and health mm-hmm. after so long time. So Nisha is an author that you will see in some slides because we realize the imp- we need to understand better the biology through culture, but also we need to understand how to improve the interventions, right? So this is the most important thing. and um, I, As I mentioned before, I am more or less a basic researcher. So I do a lot of research. I have a large network in Latin America. But we realized that we need to do something more. We just started to bring artists that are working with patients with Parkinson's, with dementia, with a stroke, with a schizophrenia, many other conditions. So we just created, with Dominic Campbell, maybe you know him, he's the author of the Creative Ring Week, you should go there in March next year. So with Dominic we created a network, because those artists don't have any payment, they do just for free, you know, just for helping the people. And the government doesn't understand that this is really a treatment, and this is something important. So we want to push them, and the people are doing amazing work. Also, we try to connect people in the global north, like in Ireland or in US, with people in the global south, just to interchange knowledge, to understand that in other contexts, you know, arts can be a really recognized tool for healing. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, let me show you some examples. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> yes. so, first of all, dancing dancing is amazing and I am Argentina, but I can say tango is really special for that. You know, the tango requires a strong coordination between the two couples, and something that we call executive functions. It's something that works better than the governments in, in Argentina. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's you know how you plan, you how you make a plan to move. So I have to move here. It's just I do this, right? It's my basal ganglia you- that can do it in an automatic way. But, you know, for instance, people with Parkinson that have, you know, damage to this part of the brain, the, the basal ganglia, they need to do, you know, like consciousness, like thinking. When you learn to bike, after a while, you don't need to be aware of that, right? So the tango helps with these executive functions and allows the people, you know, to reduce the freezing. The freezing is a kind of problem these patients have, you know, when they have to do complex movements or when they are under stress. Uh, so uh, also, you know, it, it could improve the social interaction, the empathy. Many patients with Parkinson have this kind you know, they, they feel like they can make any mistake with their movements, right? So being exposed to social context really can help them to avoid to surpass this. Hmm. See? Yeah I will this is too much information, I will skip that, but you will have the slides. And if you want papers, it's the only that I have chosen of that, so let me know and I will be happy to share them. With Alina Haas, we want to do something more nice than just tango, you know, like this kind of native um, Brazilian dance. We want to do it with Parkinson's in Brazil. I will tell you next year when we started the project. Mm-hmm. But other things, so these two guys, Mm -hmm. they they are friends of mine. They come from San Juan, the place where I live. They were homeless. They were under drugs. You know, one of them have a bullet still there, you know. It's like a good memory. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they started to survive, you know, with music. With music. And once they say, I would like to teach other young people, you know, to don't have the same choices that I made. I said, let's do it. So we got support from the, from, from the GBHI and from the Atlantic Philanthropy. And we started to train them about prevention of brain health. That was hard. Believe really, really, me. They are really bad boys. So they learned to do it. But now we got another grant. They are going to teach children music. Other people will tell the people, you know, the children about prevention, about how to how important is to sleep well, you know. Don't smoking, uh, eating well, doing exercise. And I think that this is the kind of interventions that we need to do. Uh, in Colombia, we have been working a lot. As a scientist, I have published a lot. You know, Colombia, it's having a terrible history of violence. Uh, it was a civil war there, seven million of displaced people, 350,000 deaths, you know, it, it was just terrible. And um, we, as a researcher, the first thing that I did is just trying to understand violence, trying to predict violence, understanding how context, you know, exposure to violence, induce uh, more violence, right? But we, we also start to, to try to think about, well, now the peace, more or less, a kind of weirdo peace is there. How we can start to do changes is very challenging because, you know, three generations of violence cannot disappear in just one day. Um, and we do a lot of art, so this is, you know, this, they, they are personal minds, so many people have amputations. So we did this work, it's called La Pien del Conflicto, it's like the skin of the conflict, because they have amputation, they do, you know, narratives, they start to do poetry with that. And then we also started to do theater with victims and victimizers. That is really hard. Really, really, really hard. But it's incredible how you can help the people with these tools. Also with art, you know. These are all pieces of work. Oh, I am doing huh. It's not my father. It's just I need to finish up to talk too much. So I will skip this. Just the, the only thing I want to say, so environment, what you do in your life. You know, how you are exposed to stress, how you manage the stress, and the cumulative effect is impacting your biology. Not only your social interaction, not only your personal life, and it's impacting this macro effect, you know, like social interaction impact these micro levels within a neuron, you know, like, you know, the way that microglia or astrocytes tiny cells in your brain interact or become more toxic or less toxic. So we need to understand the complexity of brain health. Uh, and we need to understand that the same person with the same <laughs> genetical background, living in a, you know, you cannot see, but this is a kind of poor environment versus a rich environment with healthy versus unhealthy habits, you know, with you know security versus non-security, it will have a completely different brain health. So what we do in the life is really, really important. Um, we need to understand how art this is a picture that will be published i was doing with my daughter and it's a combination of nature with painting just to show you know the relevance of using culture to interact with biology we don't we don't want silos we don't we don't want we don't want isolated academics working just in biology or culture we need to understand if we want to understand the impact of art, we know that have. But we need better theories. And we need to have better measurements you know, for being able to prescribe art in a more efficient way. So we are trying to move that. I just want to say thank you to Dominique Campbell, who is an amazing, doing an amazing job for that. And thank you so much. Sorry for my delay. <laughs>
3: for having me. Um, I'm going to be talking about music therapy. I am a music therapist and I use music in my everyday life um, for brain health, for health, for well-being. Um, a little bit of an introduction to myself. First of all, as I said, I am a qualified music therapist. All music therapists have to be IACAT registered, so the Irish Association of Creative Arts Therapists. We're a little bit different than musicians or people that work in the arts and health field because we've gone and done creative arts therapy training, which is slightly different therapy element to this work, which you'll, you'll understand when you hear about the work. So I did my undergraduate in music in Trinity College. Um, and then I went into my master's in University of Limerick. It's the only place you can study music therapy in the country currently. Um, I then went and did some neurologic music therapy training, which is specific to kind of stroke, brain injury, rehab. And I'll speak a little bit about that work. They're really targeted techniques that we use um, with that particular cohort. I play the piano, the flute, the guitar, I sing. A lot of music therapists have to be quite flexible musically. We've no problem picking up a drum or picking up a shaker and using that as our instruments as well. So some of the roles that I either currently hold, a lot of music therapists work in a lot of different places. So I do have a lot of roles that I have at the moment. I work in the National Rehabilitation Hospital here in Dunleary. Um, We have a wonderful music therapy team there, a quite thriving department. Um, I also work in St. James's Hospital, which Karen mentioned. Um, I'll speak a little bit more about that work because um, it's in the acute setting, which was which is quite challenging actually, but also I might touch upon how it developed a little bit just because Karen mentioned it in in the introduction. Um, I'm also a creative arts therapy lead in the Irish Cancer Society. We're developing a really exciting um, service there for children and young adults. Um, I'm also an experienced healthcare assistant in St. James's Hospital and have been for over 10 years. When I finished my... um, my leaving certificate i went and trained as a care assistant and that was what led me really to music therapy i was always musical and always wanted to study music but there was something oh i'd love to get into the health so it's either nursing or music for me really so i went no i'm going to do music but then went in and, and trained as a as a health care assistant And when I finished my undergraduate in in music then, I said, I really want to pair these things together. And I could see from my healthcare work that there was huge deprivation, huge need in the hospital for the arts, for music in my case. And I said, this is something that I'd really like to do. And I went and trained. Um, I also do some private work with adults with intellectual disabilities, children and adults with ASD. Um, Okay. Why are we using music as a therapeutic tool? Okay, And August had a lovely um, diagram of a big X over the creative side and the logic side of the brain. And I will really advocate for that. There is a misconception that creativity or music happens only in the right side of our brain. This is not correct. This is a myth. Creativity, in particular, I'll speak with music specifically, happens in all lots and lots of areas of the brain. When we think of music, we break up, when we listen or engage with music, we actually break the sound up so we can understand it. Our brain breaks it up. So that might be pitch, it might be rhythm, it might be melody, it might be the lyrics, it might be the emotion that you associate with that music, the memories you associate with that music, it might be rhythm and it might be movement. So there's no surprise that it's a full brain activity. And most music therapists are trained to capitalize on that. We're opportunistic, as, as has just been mentioned. We just use those elements to, to target specific things. So just on the left of the screen, you'll see your brain's normal response to a normal stimulus, a normal auditory stimulus, a sound, a kettle boiling, a car going by. If you see so the, the lot the darker colours, the red and the yellow is what's somewhat fired up. You're know, becoming active. If you see on the right side, it's the brain responses to music. There is multiple areas. The red, the yellow, the orange is what's actually fired up. So there's no surprise. So I have neuroplasticity written there. Our brains are constantly changing constantly learning constantly doing different things and what we do is just use music as a tool to support that new learning regaining function or neuroplasticity and there's a quote there a brain that engages in music is changed by engaging in music okay simply saying it can change okay this is just a more elaborate um diagram of the brain and the different parts of it, I won't go into it too much, Um, but your visual cortex when you're looking at an instrument or you're looking at music written, um, your movement centre, your auditory, just processing, um, so just really drilling home that it's a full brain activity. Not only that, but music is really connected to our emotion, feeling, memories. And this is a wonderful quote that I use a lot, and music has the power to make us smile, bring us to all kinds of tears, take us back in time and make us dance in the moment. There is actually an additional bit to that quote saying, for every type of day, there is music. I don't actually agree, because sometimes we don't want music. Sometimes we just want (laughs) silence. Sometimes in our world it's overstimulated. Sometimes it's lots of noise, lots of music. Oh, let's put that music on; it'll cheer you up. Not necessarily. Um, so when I work in the hospital, sometimes somebody goes, "Oh no, I don't want that today. I feel sick, or you know, just not up for it." No problem. That might be the only choice that they got to take, got to have that day, which is really significant. Um, okay, I've a few little videos here. Um I'm going to give you this one. This will just show you the impact of simply listening to music can have. And um, this is an older lady with severe dementia um, in a nursing home. And um, her caregiver gave her um, headphones to listen to Swan Lake. This lady was a ballerina that danced the, the lead in Swan Lake. Okay, how does music therapy support those living with dementia? This is this is specific kind of to dementia, but then I'll go I'll, I'll go out to, to other conditions as well. Um, so firstly the emotional support. We are therapists first and foremost. We just use music as our tool. So sitting with somebody, listening to them, listening to their their memories, their their life, their struggles, their challenge, and bringing them a little bit of joy, potentially, or letting them express what they need to express. So it improves quality of life, both somebody within a hospital, in a nursing home setting, or in the community. Um, it's a space to express all emotions. I'm a firm believer that if you're if you're feeling sad, it's okay to listen to some sad music. There's a reason why we go to sad music when we feel sad. It's because we can relate to it a little bit further or we can see that someone else is relating to it also. For nonverbal communication, this is where music really comes into our own. And um, we can work, we can do full sessions with people with not one word of communication, not one word of verbal communication. We can do gesture, we can nod, we can play. For example, I always give this anecdote. If I gave somebody a drum to play, one of the big drums we have, and they decide to bang on the drum as hard as they can, they haven't said a word to me, but I, being trained to do so can play my music to reflect maybe how they're playing. Um, And on some level we have connected. They can say, oh, you're listening to me, or you know how I might be feeling right now. And then I can maybe change my music and they might start changing their music and we can start creating something between us. We haven't said a word to each other, okay? But we've connected on a level. Um, And this can really, really happen. Maybe the next time that person has that drum, they decide to throw it on the floor or decide to ignore it completely. That says a huge amount about how that person might be doing on that day or how they might be feeling. So that's the non-verbal communication side of things. Um, Promote self-expression and identity. Uh, Music is so connected to our personal identity. What music do you like or dislike? Um, That's the first question I go in with somebody. I don't say, what diagnosis do you have and how long are you in this hospital bed? But what music do you like and what do you like? Do you like sport? Do you like gardening? Things like that, which is so different for somebody that might be in the hospital context. Um, Yes, reduce anxiety, agitation, depression or low motivation. Um, a lot of the time in the hospital, the physiotherapist might go, oh, could we do a music therapy session just before our physio session so that they're motivated to come down to the gym with me? Yeah. I said, yeah, no problem at all. So we time ourselves or even better, why don't we start our music therapy session? Because they trust me before more they trust you. And then I'll come down to the physio gym with you and let's do our physio work together and I can I'm going to show you a little bit of that Um, reducing agitation and fear by promoting familiarity and that therapeutic relationship I would work with the same person again and again to build that relationship so the staff might be changing every single day but at least they know you're the music lady you're the music therapist that I see every week Um, familiarity within the context, a hospital is a very scary place for people and at least when they're listening to their favourite music or something familiar to them it can can bring a sense of safety. An emotional outlet for family and caregivers especially at end stage dementia or really severe stroke or brain injury that communication with your loved one can can be impacted. So sometimes it's much easier to sit with somebody and listen to something or engage with something else, secondary to a conversation. Again, it reduces the need for that verbal communication. So I'm gonna move on to movement next. So we're gonna get some movement going. So I do have a collection of instruments up here. Some of you, at the end of this, if you can't see them, come up and have a little look, have a little play. It's no problem at all. Um, so what I do with, with movement, with music, um, music is, number one, a fantastic motivator for music. A lot of us vote for movement. A lot of us will put something in our ear before we go to a, on a walk, gym, whatever it is, just to get us hyped. There is also something really significant about the rhythm and movement okay there is a reason why we have a heartbeat, a breathing rate and when we walk beside somebody we start to match their steps instinctively or if there's some music on in the background you tend to start walking walking to the pace of the music. We are ingrained rhythmically, doesn't matter whether you play an instrument or you don't all humans are okay so what we do is we put and a lot of physiotherapists will do the same with just a metronome a tick tick, 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 tick. what we do is make it a little bit more enjoyable and put a, a song or something music to it with a with a regular pace okay then we might set up the space so that there's a drum on one side and a drum on the other so that we're, we're encouraging the person to do their exercises leaning side to side, looking at their balance. Or they might be going forward and back, <coughs> forward and back. Or they might even have, as you'll see, my bells here. They won't. I think.
1: Their,
3: feet, their feet, things like that. Uh, so there's lots and lots we can do, but I'm going to have a lovely helper with me today to show. Can I get maybe two, three volunteers to come up and try it? Go yeah? Okay. Anybody else? Two more? Okay, and August. <laughs> I'm going to get you to do our... Okay, so yeah. yeah, if you come on over here. Me. Yeah. Mary. <coughs> yeah. So Mary, your your thing is going to be like this. Okay. You're going to play <laughs> the drum with your feet. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. What's your name? Okay. Okay. Your job is going to be the squat. Okay. It's <coughs> going to be hard. Oh. Okay. Okay. Please. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> This one well. So we're going to do a crisscross, okay? A real important movement is our crisscross. Okay, crossing the midline is really significant because it takes more cognitive power to cross our midline with movement, okay? Um okay, August is going to do our lucky tango. Wow. <laughs> the bus, the the <laughs> I just want to say before we start, with Sessions that we would do if the person is from a different country or a different culture, we'd always try and bring in the culture or the or the style. Okay, so when I heard Argentina, I said, Oh, let's do some tango for our session. Okay. Um August, do you want to come here? Uh, said, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so ladies, our focus is going to be, I'm gonna do a move myself, is going to be the regularity of the movement. So really strong beats, okay, for your movement. So it's gonna be nice and slow, okay? Yeah. Let's go. we do this okay well i get people with shakers so as i said the non-verbal communication is really key in what we do we work with people who are completely non-verbal sometimes um or that have a completely different language than us and i go in i say oh god you know they're very poor english but i don't speak spanish but i can go in and do full sessions with them especially with their cultural with their cultural music Um, With singing, singing is incredible for our lung health. Incredible for our lung health, and I'm sure that was spoken at before. Um, So deep breathing, phonation is what we call just singing out one one note for as long as possible. It gets our mucus going in in our lungs, if we do have anything, but also it can help with our swallow, if we sing from low, to high. Can we try that? So everybody, low. Okay, so what that simply does is, wonderful, um, what that simply does is when we swallow, our larynx, where it's our voice box, goes up and down really quickly. Okay, it just goes up, down, up, down when we swallow. Okay, when we sing, when we sing low, our larynx goes down, and when we sing high, it goes up, So we're essentially isolating that movement as if we're in the gym and we're going really slowly. So when we sing, that's simply what is what our larynx is doing. People in the hospital, swallow can be a very significant thing for them. So if there's any swallow issues, strengthening it by singing. Um, Word finding and sentence completion with a simple song, which we might do our song. I'm sure a lot of people know this. Que sera, sera, yeah, Whatever was. So, for somebody, if I was working individually with somebody, they might not be able to sing the whole sentence, but they might be able to do the last word. So I won't demonstrate that now, but sometimes I'll I'll um, leave a gap or I'll slow it down to create anticipation, things like that. Um, but today we'll just enjoy singing it. Shaking up high, what's next? What's next? Sometimes I might go high, then low. Then you have to go high, then low, or lots of different things with the coloured bells. Sometimes if I'm working one to one with somebody, I might say play the blue, followed by the green, followed by the red, followed by the blue. <laughs> you know, things so getting them to to learn different things and sequencing and executive function, as as August mentioned. Um, we also do a lot of songwriting. We also, especially for emotional support, but also that cognitive piece. Can we uh, make up our own things? Can we work on a project together? Um, Short term memory, lyric recall, new learning, Um, yeah. Then something really significant with music is that social interaction. Um, really, really key. As you've seen, we've just done something together. When you're doing it together, it enhances the whole experience. Not only, is this an announcement? Oh, not for us, I hope. Um, Social interaction, where was I? So, even when you're singing as a choir or moving as a group,
1: because you will be closing in 15 minutes. Because you're
3: doing it. Oh, goodness me. Do do. To will do make a little song around it. Um, because you're doing it as a group, it, number one enhances the whole experience Just simply doing it as a group. But actually, because you're having to come together to do it at the same time, to breathe together, to sing the same notes, to move in the same way, even, you know, even when you're in a group and you start to sway side to side, we all have to go right, are we going right or are we going left? Are we going this or are we going? And everyone has to kind of decide collectively without speaking, they kind of go, <laughs> I'm going this way or I'm going that way. So even in that, that collective doing together really enhances the whole experience. And um, But cognitively, it's actually more of a challenge too. Mutual enjoyment, collective familiarity, um awareness of self and others, we do a huge amount of that is simply can you pass that instrument to that person? Or let's say hi to Mary. John, can you sing hi to Mary? And he oh Mary's in the room. Oh, that's really important. Or Mary's music, Mary's playing the drum, or John is shaking the shaker, things like that. Um, Nonverbal interaction, as I've said, family support, peer support is absolutely massive. A lot of the sessions we do incorporates family, but also staff, getting them to interact with their patient or their person they're caring for in a different way. Um, we call it the ripple effect in music therapy is when sometimes it was a, a real example of this in the physio. I was doing a very a functional session with people down walking and moving in a particular way things like that and then out of the, the corner of my eye there was another physiotherapist in another room with somebody and heard the music happening and then they decided to have a conversation with their person that they were working with saying do you like music mary Oh, I love music, so it opened up a whole other conversation during their physio session that they'd usually be going right. Let's do some more of this, that, or the other. So these next slides, I've already covered them in our in our in this slide. But these are really specific techniques that we use, mainly with stroke and brain injury rather than dementia. Um, I just want to touch on one one or two, really. So in communication, there's a thing called melodic intonation therapy. This is a real strict um, technique that we use. So some people, um, a lot of people that have had a stroke, may um, experience aphasia, which is just... Clarity of speech and the ability to get the words out can be really impacted. And um, We see as music therapists that if that's impacted in speech, sometimes it's, it's not there in singing, that actually they can sing really fluently or even a little bit more fluently. So what we do is we um, get functional phrases. So it might be, I need the toilet. I'm in pain. I love you. How are you? things like that, and we put them to pitch because it tricks your brain into thinking, oh, this is music, comes from a little bit of a different area of your brain. Um, And then we slowly, we practice that and we practice that and we slowly take away the pitch. If somebody has a particular accent, we will make sure that our pitch, our melody actually tries to incorporate somebody's accent, which is is really significant. Um, All of this other stuff, oral motor exercise, Vocal intonation therapy. That's the ooh, that's the one we just did. Oh, the oral motor exercises your la 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 me, me, me t oh 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 e, oh, e, oh. They're all your oral motor exercises. And um, sentence completion. I've already spoken about this volume, which is really significant for people with Parkinson's, is looking at the volume work, and um, sometimes it's really reduced volume. Um, OK, I'm going to keep going because you can read them. That's some of the research about communication. You can have a look at them. Movement, we've already gone through this. Um, this is the use the TIMP, T-I-M-P, is the use of the instruments, putting them strategically in place. So if we want somebody to just start using their right arm a little bit more, we might put the chimes in the right side rather than the left side, things like that. Um, this is your emotional support. And these are some of the more challenging words that we can come across. As I said, we're therapists first and foremost. We will sit with people. We don't have to use music if we don't want to or if the person doesn't want to. And that's okay. And it's it's to be okay with these challenging terms. And that's, I think, really key. And then the cognition. So in there, it talks about the visual neglect, the spatial neglect, awareness and arousal. So sometimes if somebody's really low and not really aware of their surroundings, music can bring them out and they're more aware of their sensory, sensory um, environment. Learning and creativity cannot be lost when we work with, with music every day. Um, as I said, we're learning, we're creating things with our client. It's never us just giving music to them, it's always collaborative some more research and then the sensory, I just wanted to touch on this before I finish. A sensory awareness and integration. I mentioned at the beginning that people in hospital, in particular, or nursing homes, can be very sensory deprivated. Sometimes there's no sensory input at all, or they're sensory overloaded. In an ICU, for example, intensive care, there can be so many beeps, so much going on, so many emergencies, and it can be very overwhelming. What music can bring to those spaces when done? mindfully and i'm very keen on that has to be done mindfully and um, it can enhance that environment or change that environment or bring a familiarity to it it has to be carefully considered a lot of people can get over stimulated and unfortunately a lot of people that bring music to places can over stimulate a lot of a lot of patients or a lot of people that we work with um and of course at the end of that being person-centred, looking at what music do you actually like. We're not going to just give music to you. It's not about that. Thank you. The, the lesson call time. will be closing in five minutes. So <laughs> let's continue this me. again. Right on <laughs> for a music, Thank
0: you so much. Um, oh, she, that was amazing.
1: Well,
0: well done. Was awesome. <laughs> So you can read all the papers um, on the slides there. So we have a half hour left. Now, I just need to say, I did take a video while you were singing. If anyone has a problem with the video being shared, please tell me and I just won't use it. <laughs> <laughs> anyone, anyway, apart from walking
1: and
0: uh, you're happy we shared. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, brilliant, brilliant. Because actually joking. Okay, so now we have two really important people, and at the end of the five weeks, we've been talking for five weeks about um, people, older people, but significantly older people who have dementia, and so it makes perfect sense for me at the end of five weeks that we'll round it off with a couple who live with dementia. Kevin and Helena Quaid. Now, Kevin has dementia, but he says Helena lives with
1: <laughs> Yeah.
0: And that's why Kevin couldn't speak first. And Helena, as our final speaker in five weeks, is our caregiver. Not only is she a caregiver, but she is the voice for caregivers, not only just in Ireland, because she's the chair of the Irish Dementia uh, Working Group. Dementia Carers Campaign Network. network. She also is the voice in Europe. Mm -hmm. And the voices of both Kevin and Helena Quaid have been heard not just in Ireland, well, very loudly in Cork, (laughs) (laughs) in Cattrack specifically. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But not just in Cork or in Ireland, but as Kevin is uh, chair of the European Dementia Working Group. But also, he's really important within the whole Global Health Institute network. So the voices you're going to hear now for both Kalina and Kevin are voices that are heard literally around the world. They presented at conferences. uh, And when you hear Kevin, and I've heard it many times at many different occasions, a lot of people say to me, does he really have dementia? (laughs) Yes, he does. But now we know, five weeks later, that there isn't just one type of dementia. There are many. Many, many. Alzheimer's, the most common one, 60% of people who have dementia have Alzheimer's. That's the one my mammy had. And that's the one where lots of things like memory boxes and scrapbooks and joint choirs and sparking all lovely memories. They're great for people who have Alzheimer's. There are many other types. Roisin mentioned aphasia. So primary progressive aphasia is for words get a bit scrappled. Behaviour was mentioned by Augustine. This is an FTD one, the frontotemporal one. Where behaviour is the thing that's challenged. And we have another dementia, I probably mentioned just it because it's one that's very close to my heart and it's the one that your dad has. It's called Lewy body mm. dementia. And who is the best expert, not only just in Ireland, but in the world, at Lewy body? Kemper. Oh.
1: Um,
4: Thanks, Roisin, how do I follow that? With um, Just listen to Roisin, is it an ideal world or does it actually happen? No. Is Ro- Roisin just saying, you know, in an ideal world, this is what should happen? Mm-hmm. Well, a good friend of hers, Dr. Lisa... Kelly. Lisa Kelly. I've diminished her. A couple of months ago, I talked three of us into UL. Mm-hmm. I have Lewy by dementia, and Helen and Jerry have Alzheimer's. And our three carers were with us. We had couldn't there, mm-hmm. and we had a whiteboard, and we started putting thoughts that came into our head on the whiteboard. And then we started adding music to it. And we performed a song that we have written for UL, a number of months ago. And we will shortly be going to a studio to record it. And it looks like it's going to become a worldwide anthem. Uh-huh, very good. So that is
1: massive.
4: I also heard that she spoke uh, last the week. The lexicon is now closed. No, it's
1: Please not. Please
4: take your way to see your <laughs>
0: Thank you. It's uh, not oh, closed, oh, so i finish. <laughs> the finished. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Good luck. <laughs> um, you're speaking about hearing, mm. is that an ideal world? As a person with Louis body dementia, I normally say with Lewy body brain disease because people associate dementia with memory loss, nothing wrong, nothing wrong with my memory, well most of the time anyway, but hallucinations, nightmares are horrific, absolutely horrific. And three months ago I got my hearing checked. I was down 80% in this year, I was down 60% in this year. And since my hearing aids were put in, I still have nightmares, but when I wake at night, I don't wake up crying. I know where I am. I know who my wife is. I still have to turn on my iPhone, I still have to turn on music. When I have a menu in the day. I could not be in an empty room one time with complete silence because the noise inside my head would literally drive you demented and I hate that word. I had to have some kind of noise on the background. So if you love one or if you have dementia, for God's sake get your hearing checked. You lose and lose and lose. When you get diagnosed. But when I got my hearing aids, I got my hearing back. I was going to read from both books, but I won't because of time. I'll read from one. Uh, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's 10 years ago. I'm with Louis Body Dementia about seven years ago. And I said, You must be mad. I didn't hear Louis, I didn't hear Body. I had dementia, and I said, "There's nothing wrong with my memory. Mm -hmm. Anyway, to make a long story short, there was no information, nowhere. And I was keeping a diary, and about every six weeks I would go up to the neurosurgeon and give him my notes, and they said, would I consider writing a book? Mm
1: -hmm.
4: It's form of arts. I love music. And I said to the doctor, and he was sitting across me where you are now, he said, I'm with Dementia, and you're asking me to write a book, are you mad? <laughs> I, hated, I hated school, I hated learning English, I hated spelling, I hated reading, I hated writing. And I didn't like a teacher either. <laughs> and now I'm an author. I became one of the first people in the world to ever write a book about lewy biodementia Dementia from the patients, by the view. And that's it, called Louis Body Dementia Survival and Me. Thank you. And it's about, you get to know me a little bit in the book, you get to know my family, and what I think may have led up to my Louis Bodies. It's just an idea. But how we co opt with it, and in the back of the book, my three kids, my three kids, Helena, and a brother of mine, a friend of mine, they all wrote what it was like for them. The most important thing you can ever do is listen to the voice of the person who has dementia. I'm not an expert in many things in life. I'm actually an expert in nothing in life. But when it comes to Louis Bay Dementia, you're not going to find anyone better. No matter what type of dementia it is, if you listen to the person who has the dementia, they are the real experts. An early diagnosis is not important, it's vital. Because if I had not got an early diagnosis and the correct diagnosis, I know where I'd be today, Helena would be visiting my grave. It's, it's just, it's as it's plain and it's as simple as that. And if anyone has been told that they have dementia or a touch dementia, then they have been given the greatest disservice anyone can ever be given because there is no such thing as a diagnosis of dementia. And there is no such thing as a touch dementia. Can you imagine someone saying, are you a touch pregnant?
1: <laughs>
4: no, you're not. Can you imagine, imagine a cancer patient going into a uh, doctor's office and he's saying, do you know, I think you've cancer? Yes, it's probably your age, <laughs> you know, we leave it at that. Would you take it? Like hell you would. So why are people with dementia being treated the same? Because believe it or not, as bad as our country is, we have all the scans, we have every single scan to detect every single type of dementia. So, if your, your loved one hasn't been given a correct diagnosis, go back and tell them we want it, we need it, and it's all right. Because if you think about it logically, if you're told that you have dementia 100% dementia what are you being treated for? Are you being treated for Alzheimer's, Lewy body, front temporal lobe, vascular? I'm not going to name out the 400 different types. They're taking a shot in the dark. And it's just not right. Don't ever give up on people. People in nursing homes, don't give up on them. Because the story yesterday, last night, and it broke my heart. One of our former chairs was in a nursing home. And we had our tenth anniversary um, for the Irish Dementia Working Group yesterday for the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland and chair. And I was on live stream on Zoom. And one of our former chairs hasn't spoken a word in 12 months. His wife was with him. And I was presented with an award from Minister Butler. I talked to his wife and he said, well done, Kevin, after 12 months. But when you go into someone inside in a care home and they're non-verbal, does that mean you give up on them? Would you give up on someone who's deaf or dumb or blind? No, you wouldn't. If you go into a nursing home and your loved one is there and they think you're their sister or their brother, or their uncle or their father, it makes no difference. Watch for their reaction. Look at their eyes. Do their eyes light up? Do they smile. If they do, you're hitting the right note. Because that's all any of us ever wants to do, is to be happy in life. And if you can make someone happy, what harm is it if they think that your father, it doesn't matter, the relation doesn't matter. Because there's two things you'll never forget. And Sean was living proof of that yesterday. You'll never forget the way a person made you feel. And you'll never forget a feeling. And I always say that people that you're bringing is like I don't know how any of you ever watched the gold mining films. And they call them the old timers when they were mining for gold long ago. And they left these golden nuggets in the ground. And if you're talking to someone in a nursing home and they ask you every 10 minutes, where are you from, where are you from, where are you from? In between them 10 minutes, every single thing there will tell you are facts. And they are golden nuggets of memories. And you need to gather them. You need to treasure them. Because you know what? When they're gone, they're gone. You will not getting them back. So that's why I say, don't ever, ever, ever give up on people. I have such a love of writing now, and my dementia has gone so bad that I actually wrote a second book.
1: <laughs>
4: I'm on my third book. And my third book, believe it or not, is all about the arts. And I think in an ideal world, and I get to speak to 6,000 neurologists from all over Europe and next May, they will be told that when the Kevin Quaid's this world are given a diagnosis, you ring up 10 days later, or the secretary rings up and says, "How can I speak to Kevin? Not to Alina, to Kevin. Kevin will say, I want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you. You ask Kevin how he's feeling. You can talk to Belina after. But if Kevin is saying, look, I'm coming to terms with it. Then you just say, do you know what we'll do now? We'll get your hearing checked. We'll get your eyesight checked. We'll get your bloods checked. And we'll get a picture all out of it. And we'll get it all together. And it's the only way we're going to succeed. It's the only way we're going to cope. I'm standing here eight years or seven years after being diagnosed. My doctor told me three months ago, you should be dating. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but as the boss hits me, I'm going off for a while. <coughs> no one knows. But whether you're a researcher or no matter what you're doing, people like me, our voices, need to be front and central to everything that's done, that's taught, that's discussed about when it comes to dementia, no matter what type of dementia. And that's why I am campaigning for it all over Europe. And I'm not saying this to say how wonderful I am, but in the last month, I've been in Helsinki, I've been to Brussels, I'm going to Luxembourg. I'm going to the European Parliament. I speak at Linster House. And by Jesus, the politicians listen when I talk. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you that for nothing. My second book is called, I am Kevin, not Louis. Um. That's not about Louis bodies. People who have Alzheimer's people who have multiple systems atrophy have all written in this book what they have achieved. I have written what I have achieved since I was diagnosed. The back of this book you will see um, a portrait. The guy that designed this I don't own the jacket, by the way. (laughs) Cunlay. He presented this to Robin Williams, his wife, when he died. We all know how Robin Williams died. I tried to go to the same way as Robin, but don't tell me losing weight is a good idea because if I was skinny, I was gone. The belt that I had around my neck broke. I was hanging there for seconds and the belt around my neck broke. And it's not funny, but I, I sometimes I make light of it isn't, and maybe that's wrong. I will finish up on this because I know time is coming against me, but my dear friend, Cam, who's sitting here in the front row, invited me on a radio show one day. And she said, I want you to bring along your favorite poem and your favorite song. I go back to my earlier statement, I hated school. (laughs) So how in the name of God was it going to be on my favorite poem? But I, I wrote one. I'll read a little piece in the prologue leading up to it, and then I'll read the poem. Robin Williams once wrote, I want to help people be less afraid. They are some of the most powerful words that I've ever heard since being diagnosed with lewy by dementia. Throughout the book you will see that I make several references to Robin Williams, and his name appears in the writing of other people who have contributed to this book. Robin's words are not the title of this book, but they could be. As it describes exactly what I want the book to do, and it's how I want people to feel after reading it. My hope for you and your loved ones is that by the end of this book, you will say to yourself, and you said it earlier, cabin, if they can do it, and so can I. During a radio interview with Karen Meenan near FM 90.3, I don't know what I'm allowed to mention it, <laughs> but not. <laughs> it said, no, no dementia, so. <laughs> <laughs> Which included my wife, Alina, Professor Ian McKeith, a world-renowned expert from LBD, Louis body dementia in the UK. The man is an absolute genius, and Tyler Norwood, who directed the film Robin's Wish, and we were asked, as I said, to pick our favorite poem to recite. following is the poem which I wrote, and it describes the way that Louis Barry Dementia took Robin Williams. It's called, Kevin, Louie and Robin, by Kevin Quaid. I continuously find it so hard to read it, but we'll give it our best shot. Kevin knew Robin, Robin didn't know Kevin. Kevin made hundreds laugh, Robin made millions laugh. Laughter and good humor hid the pain that Louis was causing again and again. Robin was in pain, but didn't know why. Kevin's pain was relentless, to the point he would cry. Robin searched for answers, but couldn't find them. Kevin's search brought him Louis, but he didn't let it define him. Louis was the cause of the pain. Louis was the cause of the fear, while draining us of our good cheer. Louis was the reason Kevin and Robin hated the night. Louis was the reason Kevin and Robin were consumed with fright. Louis will make you think you're going mad and make you forget the good times that you had. Louis will hide and drive you insane. Louis can cause you the world of pain. Louis is sneaky, menacing and unfair. Louis body dementia just doesn't care. Louis took Robin without Robin knowing. Louis tries to take Kevin, but Kevin's not for going. Many a battle is had with Louis. Some are won, some are lost. The end result is that it will cost your body, your mind, and even your life, unless you fight with all your might. Louis, my dementia is a horrible disease. It must be stopped and brought to its knees. So join me in the fight. Bring it out to the light, get rid of the stigma, and let's fight in plain sight. Thank you.
0: I did ask him to bring them. So if you want to get signed copies, they'll be available. There's only one person who can follow my White.
5: Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just looking down now, I didn't realise there was such a crowd of you here. <laughs> oh anyway, good evening everybody. Good evening. So I'm married to Kevin. And um, just to give you a little bit of a a background into um, the start of Kevin's illness, when he was 45, he got uh, orthostatic hypertension. When he'd stand up, he'd be dizzy and he'd fall down. And he was in hospital several times with heart issues, uh, pains, pains, and more pains. Um, Every scan was done. Uh, We lived in Australia and Then the year he turned 50, he'd been in hospital in and out in Australia for so many weeks at a time with heart issues, pains in his bones. They thought he had viral meningitis at one time, even though they couldn't get the lumbar puncture. And he came back out for his 50th birthday party. And they actually kind of suggested that when he'd get home to Ireland to check himself for um, Parkinson's or um, dementia, really, wasn't it? And they did mention Alzheimer's, but he didn't have he didn't seem to have any cognitive decline at the time. So Kevin was diagnosed at the age of 51 with Parkinson's when we came back to Ireland and at 53 with Lewy body dementia. And Kevin was 60 in September. But the interesting thing about the Lewy body is the symptoms are actually unbelievable. And it's very difficult to explain to anybody because I found them unbelievable. Now, before Kevin was diagnosed in Cork in the Mercy Hospital by his neurologist, um, my son, his wife and my niece had discussed him at length so many occasions because the symptoms are so varied. The fluctuations are so incredibly weird. Um, The confusion, the hallucinations. Kevin hasn't driven in seven years because he sees people on the road or he'd have hallucinations or at night he wouldn't know me. Um, But we actually had it checked and everything and Dr. Google kind of guided us in the direction of Lewy Body. So when Kevin had his scan and it came back positive for Lewy body, we already had a kind of a fair idea that possibly that was it. Um, it's misdiagnosed and misunderstood. And thankfully now, it's people are getting more aware of it in Ireland. Um, Kevin could tell you himself he could talk for hours and now they call it polypharmacy. He was on so many drugs, each fighting with the other one. And at least that started with diagnosis. That was started. He had a walking frame. He was dying in front of our eyes. He would get up, lie on the couch, could hardly walk or talk. And then when his proper diagnosis came through, his proper medication, he was able to throw away his walking frame. And he's able to turn up and talk perfectly to everybody. But the the problem with um, the misdiagnosis and the misunderstanding of the I suppose really the symptoms of Louie body is that I could say to one member of my family Kevin is very bad this morning and he's very bad, but then they could turn up in the afternoon and he's able to chat away normally to them and he's able to have the fluctuation of Louis body. So like right, okay, he has very bad days, he's huge pain problems and all of that. But then you have the good times when you can have this positive distraction. And for us, the positive distraction away from the pain and the the just the harshness of Louis body disease is that uh, we became advocates with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. And that was a new life because before that, Kevin would get up, lie on the couch. He couldn't, he was a carpenter. He had been a DJ um, and he loved his music and he couldn't do that anymore. So he was very depressed, very down and out. Uh, Nothing lifted his spirits. But when we joined the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland and got involved in what they call public patient involvement, where you're involved in research or you give your lived experience, it reminded me of, um, you know, the great educator Maria Montessori. She said, what people really need, it lifts their spirits. It's an enormous lift to their soul if they feel useful and loved, obviously. And by us getting involved in advocacy and going talking to people, Kevin once again felt useful. He had a reason to get up where he could do something. Because as a carpenter, as a builder, he was always doing stuff. He could turn his hand to anything. And that had been gone. And the thing about uh, being an advocate is, you know, as the saying goes, in giving, we receive. We actually get more from doing the advocacy, even though the researchers and the professors always ask, they want to hear, because Kevin has such a great insight into the working of his Lewy body dementia. Uh, But we actually gain more. And me, as Kevin's spousal carer, I can assure you, if the sun is shining on Kevin, it sparkles in my house as well. (laughs) It sparkles in our kitchen, our sitting room. Whereas if Kevin is down, Kevin has huge power, you know, because a day Kevin is down, the cloud of doom and gloom comes in the back door, it comes in the front door, it can come in the window. And you know, it's very difficult then that I have to go and paint on a face or I can pretend everything is fine or after a night where his hallucinations would be awful bad and he sees me as somebody going to kill him. He has a genuine reason for being angry with me because I, you know, I would be involved in bringing a crowd to kill him or something. So, you know, sometimes then I give him a wide berth, really, for for a (laughs) while. (laughs) I know my limitations. Um, So Lewy body dementia is very difficult for anybody living with it without a diagnosis because like Kevin had been to psychiatrists and psychologists and, you know, it's so difficult because he pains everywhere and any test he did for Alzheimer's, you know, the clock, Mm -hmm. he passed them faster than I would. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it it really didn't show in that at all. So um, I suppose really what is fantastic for us as well is with, the aid of the wonderful, wonderful Karen, is that Karen started tea time with Louis, which is a once a month Zoom meeting. And of course the Zoom meetings over the pandemic was fantastic because Kevin and the lads sorted out half a shed outside, and he here's his office and his computer, and it's nicer than any place inside at home. It looks yes. fabulous. It's You'd really want to move in there. Um, But it does make a difference. But what I would have to say is what comes along with a diagnosis of um, Lewy body dementia or any, I suppose, any incurable, progressive, life-changing disease. It doesn't matter what kind of disease it is. But there is an anticipatory grief that comes with it. Because you hear the diagnosis, it's incurable and oh my God, how long, you know, you'd be Googling, how many years is this, or how many, whatever. And well, Kevin has gone against anything they've said, but it's because he's active. It's because he gets up in the morning and if he has a Zoom meeting, he will put on his collar and tie. It doesn't matter if it's a tracksuit in the bottom he's on, <laughs> but he'll look good on camera. And it gives him a lift. And we all know ourselves if we kind of, if we can motivate ourselves to feel good. Whereas before diagnosis, it wasn't possible for Kevin to motivate himself because his tablets were all wrong and all of that. And music is huge in our lives. And I must say, Roisin, um, my mother uh, died at 77 from an internal bleed from, um, she'd been on blood thinners for years. But uh, my sister had tapes. We all had tapes on music because we were all singers as youngsters. And every time the tapes would stop, which was, you know, we had tapes that time. We didn't have our iPhones. And um, we'd have to make sure there was another one ready because she would be, she was semi-conscious, I suppose, for two, two or three weeks. And she'd sit up and say, hey, put Francis on again. It wasn't Put Alina on, she's mm-hmm. no messing me. Obviously, <laughs> it was the great singer, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so music, definitely, it's a transition. It's a transition from sadness into happiness. It's a transition from life, as we know it, to the transition of going into the light. And uh, I suppose as um, a person who I, I really believes in life after death, because I was there when my mother passed away and my dad passed away, and um, the morning before my mom passed away, she said she saw her mother and father. And she really did. She opened her eyes. She sat up and she really did see them. So, um, you know, it was lovely. I think with the, it just made us feel really good because there was music in the background, the music she wanted. And we must never underestimate the value of melody and as a complementary therapist myself, that was my background. I do Chinese acupuncture and uh, reflexology and all of that. I would be very much into the rhythm of life. And it's so important to have a rhythm of life. But I must come back on something before I finish on what Kevin said, is that how important it is for the medics to ask the person who has the disease, how they're feeling, et cetera, et cetera. Well, can I tell you, as a spousal carer, I feel it is equally important that the consultant or the GP asks me, how did you feel Kevin put down the night? How do you feel Kevin is? How do you feel Kevin was yesterday after such and such of trauma or whatever? Because I have a different perspective. I have a bird's eye view. I'm standing on the eagle's perch 24 hours a day behind closed doors. And Kevin might go into to the doctor, and he might present himself fabulous. So it is hugely important for the carer's voice to be heard. And I think it's hugely I believe, I know, it's hugely important for us to take care of our own health. Because the problem is that some, you see it all the time, The carers end up in hospital because they're worn down. They're missing sleep, which I do an awful lot, and so do you. Uh, We miss an awful lot of sleep, and we don't ever seem to be able to catch it up. But we're very (coughs) hard on ourselves. So once upon a time, I wrote a poem. Well, I write lots of poems, but this particular one I wrote because I was being very hard on myself. And I have to remind myself all the time that my best is good enough. Now, sometimes Kevin doesn't believe my best is good enough, (laughs) but I have to keep reminding him my best is always good enough and I can do no more, but it's a fact. But we can sometimes not take care of ourselves and we can be very critical. I should have said that differently now and he wouldn't have responded. Sorry, it's normally a reaction, not a response. But anyway, you know, if I said that differently, or why didn't I keep my mouth shut there now and there'd be no more about it? Mm. So... Uh. (laughs) 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 Do you know, we can be awfully critical on ourselves and self-judgmental. So on this particular day anyway, I was feeling very aspirational on how I could be so wonderful as Kevin's caring companion. So I wrote this on what my image of my perfect me would be, (laughs) but I'm afraid it's way up there. Some days I might get a moment of it, but I'll, I'll read it for you anyway. So, a caring companion, a hand of hope, a cohesive relationship, cautious steps on a tightrope. Pleasant, patient, Thoughtful and kind, smiles of real assurance, relax and unwind. A caring companion, more valuable than gold, when brittle and broken will seek to console. When words are inadequate, communicate supremely with looks of understanding, holding contact serenely. A caring companion, instinctive expertise, grace and good humor unfolded with ease. A skillful voice of reason unravels distress, harmonious tones of healing, soft and soothing, compassionate caress. A caring companion shining a light, a godsend most needed, when daunting times are in sight ever flowing good nature best interests at heart affirmative guidance accept and adapt and remember to caring companions you are never in debt as caring companions never give to get <laughs>
0: Dear, thanks to you all for being here for the last five weeks. Um, if you missed any of them they're up on the DLR library's website and you'll be able to listen back and you'll be able to catch all the lovely nuggets that we got over the last five weeks. You'll be able to hear those beautiful poems again um, and they won't be up until next week. So there's kind of a uh, week performance and then it misses the week but you'll hear week one, week two, week three are already there. Week four is going up tomorrow and week
1: five will go up next
0: week. Where exactly are they going to? DLR, to libraries, to podcast. 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 DLR yeah. libraries podcast. DLR Libraries podcast. And how long are A long time, then. Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. good. Now, normally at this stage we do Q and A, but because yes, right. we're a little bit over time, <laughs> yeah. we're not going to do Q and A now because I know they're trying to close up the libraries mm-hmm. now, right Susan? <laughs> <laughs> Have we time for even one or two? Probably not. Yeah, we're, we're special. We're special. Oh, oh, amazing. Okay, wow. We're special. Okay. Now, I want to say a huge thank you, first of all, to Citizen Standard. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Thank you. This series, uh, and it we can't do
1: this without funding. Yeah, yeah. So we need to thank also Age Friendly. <laughs>
0: Age Friendly Ireland is an organisation uh, all over Ireland and it has ambassadors all over Ireland as well. You met one of the ambassadors, Mike Hannan is the ambassador for Clare. Yes, oh, nice. mm-hmm. he does lots of things, but he is also an ambassador for Clare. Um, and they fund and support so many activities for older people and they are very welcoming for people who have dementia as well. But all-encompassing for everyone to make it age-friendly. This is an age-friendly library. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so thank you for yeah. uh, Also we want to thank DLR County Council yeah. who, who fund this. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, and also GBHI. So we've mentioned GBHI a lot. It's the Global Brain Health Institute. And through the uh, Global Brain Health Institute, we've got amazing people like Augustine.
1: Yes.
0: Yes. Did you know that not only is he amazing, but he plays flamenco guitar?
1: That was <laughs> And also we just thank Roshi. Roshi, your session was amazing. <laughs>
0: The power of someone who has a diagnosis and has turned his diagnosis into a superpower. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you just a little secret. On Friday this man is going to be called Dr. Kevin (laughs) Craig. Awarded an honorary doctorate for the work he has done promoting Louis Body Dementia. Yeah. So the doctorate I'm calling you Dr. Melina as well. Yes. <laughs> so we have room for two questions. Is there anything you'd like to ask any one of our amazing guests tonight? Yes? I guess it's for Roisin. Yes. I was wondering
3: if the brain reacts differently to different types of music. Yes. Would it react the same to like a rap song, or would it react the same to an orchestra, or mm. is it completely different? So well, we, we get that a lot. What style of music is most beneficial, we believe that it's whatever you enjoy, what you like. If somebody likes rap music, that's going to have the best echo. If Somebody likes classical music, then that's going to have the best outcome. The only things that we would look at is when you're looking at rhythm and movement is something with a strong beat. It doesn't really matter what style. We had, you know, Latin music today, we could do Molly Malone tomorrow, it doesn't matter as long as it has that strong beat. And uh, so, something classical slow wouldn't be as appropriate for that, for example. And um, no, but I would say no, but it's something, it's Whatever music is most is most related to you, really, in your culture and your history and your your life. Okay. Okay. Great question. Now we have time for just
0: one more question because I know we're going to get kicked out of here. <laughs> uh, right? And one more. Has anyone a comment on anything they've learned about brain health that they didn't know before five weeks ago? Hearing, hearing is important. Hearing, yes, it yeah. is. Yeah. We had a whole module just on hearing. So if there's one nugget we can give you, yeah. get your ears checked. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of a girl who has mild to moderate hearing, I thought I was able to hear, I'm in a choir, I thought I could hear pitch perfectly. Mm-hmm. And you're given this lovely little thing and you press each time there's a sound. And I'm there pressing away, thinking I'm just amazing, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And then they say, you missed all the top notes. I said, oh. <laughs> they said you missed half the bass. Yeah. What? I'm so yeah. <laughs> So I'm thinking, oh my god, I need to do that. Yes, I can. So no, it's just I got a flyer on my door. This is related to the hearing, and yeah. it's hidden hearing. And then the janitors is promoting that hidden hearing. are providing free hearing test in the month of November do it. for anyone over fifty. Free so hearing, a free hearing test in the month of November. So Google it and get down there and get checked. Because the hearing is a big part, isn't it? Brilliant way to finish. Free hearing tests in the month of November. In the if you haven't already got your hearing yes. test yet, please do it. It's so important. One side of your brain hears; the other side of your brain listens. If you're struggling to hear and listen, you can't comprehend. And what makes it easy for your brain is... To tune out. Please
4: don't tune out. Get, get your hearing Any that are going to get your hearing checked. Go to Hidden Hearing and tell them that Kevin Queer t- <laughs> <laughs> because this year I was awarded uh, hidden hearing heroes of all. Oh. I was on a five in Ireland. So if they think that you know me, you're going to report <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, no more. No, no, sorry, are the slides something on the website? Slides on the, Slide the website,
0: yes, soon the petrol. that Mark nice. has been taking all the recordings. Yes. They're all going to be up on the DLR Libraries podcast. You'll find everything there. Thank you. So much, oh. oh. yeah. Roxy. Yeah. 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 Thank you, all of you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.